0: For next month's
1: um, pop up. And so I know some people like having a list to kind of have things to choose from. And some people like to just last minute go, hey, this is what's going to work with um, to me. So there's the option for both. Um, if you want to be happy, um, let know like, gave us a theme for the month. We'll um, have that. And then if you just want to bring whatever. Um, no food is refused. Amen. Watch, watch someone bring something really excited and discuss and go, "Here you Pastor. Nothing will be in your All right, that's right. We did the screen change around. Right? And uh, so today, um, we're um, continuing on our series on, on Calvinism, on what does the Bible teach, and going through um, each of the different um, doctrines of it. Uh, also called Doctrines of Grace um, by some. And um, next week will be the last one. And I know my children are like, yes, thank you. It's a little bit too deep into teaching and stuff. And so this one today that we're dealing with, um, grace, the grace of God. Is it irresistible? Um, Is it Calvinist withhold to? or is it possible to resist God's grace, and is there really even any freedom of choice? Does man um, have a free will um, to respond to the gospel, or only if they're elected to do so? And so I think we get to start out with some of the definitions, okay, Um, of irresistible um, grace, Uh, Irresistible grace is a doctrine particularly associated with Calvinism which teaches that the saving grace of God is effectually applied to those whom he has determined to save the elect and in God's timing overcomes their resistance to obeying the call of the gospel, bringing them to faith in Christ. Um, It's also called effectual grace, effectual calling. Um, or efficacious grace, and so that um, if God intends to save someone, then they will be saved. You know, that they won't get saved um, no matter what. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a well-known Reformed theologian, says God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance um, to it. Uh, um, they'll usually define that there'll be two calls to be distinguished. Um, that will say there's the outward call. The gospel is preached and the call to salvation and, and is extended to everyone who hears the message, but this outward call will naturally only be resisted by the lost man, and that it will not bring sinners to Christ, because men by nature are dead in sin and enslaved by the devil is also from R.C. Scrolls ministries, and so to bring sinners to salvation, the triune God must extend to them a special inward, irresistible call, in addition to the outward call contained in the gospel message. So basically, Daniel said, saying, hey, when you preach the gospel to all, but that God secretly, behind the scenes, chooses whom that call is legitimately valid um, four. And so some arguments in favor of irresistible grace that is used, um, A.W. Pink, well-known Calvinist, and some Calvinists will say um, he's more of a hyper-Calvinist, um, although usually still pull a lot from his words. He says, if the sinner could yield to or resist Christ, the decretion would have ground for boasting and self-oriented over his cooperation with the spirit. And so they're saying, no, that salvation can't be, by grace or faith, through a free will of responding, because then we could boast that I made the right decision. I chose Christ, and so I earned my way to salvation. So that's the argument um, that is used. I would argue against that, though the recipient of a gift does not boast of himself, but of the giver. The man who is rescued from the sea and escapes certain death does not brag about what he did for himself, whether it's grabbing on to that life uh, boat or the, the, the person trying to save him, uh, but, but they boast in what the rescuer did and give thanks. Um, even though the drowning man perhaps took hold of a life presumed servant that was um, prone to him. Wayne Bruder, the Reformed theologian, says, we can say that God causes us to choose Christ voluntarily. And so to say it's not like um, our sister Ross says this, it's not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming um, to Christ against their wills, but that the Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills, so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing. Okay, so that's how they'll argue against that, you know, we're not saying that God is just making people get saved and people are like, no, I don't, I don't believe on Jesus. So they say they're not saying that, but they're saying that God changes their will to want to respond. To I me, mean, I think that's just a little bit semantics, but that is how um, they do a decision, and I want to be clear. Going to uh, um, have a different view than I would have. Now, the scripture that they often um, will use to show irresistible grace would be all that, in John 6 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And verse 44, that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, the argument is those God draws, those God chooses to save, they will believe that they won't resist. Under um, the assumption, those so God sovereignly elected will come to Christ, The rest will not and will not have opportunity to do so. I believe the question should be rather about, hey, who does the Father give to the Son? Okay, if we could find in the context, well, who is it? that the Father gives to the Son, and who does the Father draw um, to the Son? Okay, so who does the Father give to the Son? You look in verse 40, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believe upon him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so the contest is again that you know it to everyone that seeth and believe it. Um and the whole context speaking about Christ being the bread of life, um, that no man can have eternal life unless they take the bread of life, they come to the Son, and unless the Father gives them to the Son, the Father, and the Father only gives those that genuinely genuinely believe in Christ to the Son. In other words, no man can come to the Son, have eternal life, um, but to whom the Father hath given, and He gives those that believe His word, that believe that the Father sent the Son to be the life of the world. Um, Hebrews 11, 6 further says, but without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek. That uh, we're God. No, we really not believe in his word, and we who he is and That's where the Bible says we're born again of incorruptible seed by the word of the living God. Um, verse 64 um, shows some further context. But there are some of you that believe not. <clears throat> For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore i unto you. That no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. That, you know, if they're not going to believe, then they're not going to be able to have eternal life. They're not going to be able to come to the Son unless they believe in that the Father had sent them. And it was interesting here because some people questioned about Judas. you saw an article, and it was like, did Judas go to heaven or did Judas go to hell? About Judas is scary. And some were saying he went to heaven because at the last minute it says he repented of himself um, that way he had done and he went on himself. So they're like, well, it says he repented there, but that was more of like his sorrow of like, hey, I got caught. And it also maybe a recognition of what in the world did I do. When the Bible talks about Judas then went to his own place, um, that he did go to hell, he was to say? And some people question so is that true that Christians can lose their salvation? And this is where we're going to talk about next week on the perseverance of the saints. Okay, Calvinists would hold to eternal security, Arminians would hold to you could fall from grace, that you could lose your salvation. And so on that point is when I would agree with where the Calvinists stand, that there is the perseverance of the saints. Not because of our personal endurance, but because we are preserved in Christ Jesus, and none of us will be lost. You know, if we're saved, we can't lose it. And we see with Judas, it says, but there are some of you that believe not, because he knew he would betray him. So Judas, even though he was a disciple, even though he was an apostle, Jesus points out that he was not a true believer. So it's possible to be in church, you know all your life, kiss him in the doorway to heaven, and not be saved. And so Judas was not an example of a Christian that lost his salvation. He was an example that mingled with the Christians, followed Christ from afar, but yet closely there, but did not believe in Jesus as being the true Messiah that would come to redeem the world. Verse John 5, the Lord says to this director that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not hath life. And so eternal life, you can't come to the Son unless, or you, can't, unless you believe in him, and why have to have eternal life, it must be in him. Well, I can this is eternal life, not a good example, but this is eternal life, and this is the Son. That if you have the Son, you have eternal life. Okay? But if you don't have the Son, then you do not have eternal life. The salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. Hebrews um, 2, 3 tells us, How shall we escape if we need so great salvation? The Bible gives us the warning. You know, there's fiery indignation, there's wrath of God, and how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation?
0: If election is
1: as the Calvinist teaches, and irresistible grace is true, how could the elect neglect salvation, and how could the non elect do anything other than neglect salvation? And so that verse of Scripture really would not make any sense. In a Calvinistic type of framework. Because if the elect are always gonna accept salvation, then what's this warning even here for? And if the non-elect can't get saved, then what's the warning here for him for And so I mean, it was a warning because we do have a choice. Uh, some scriptures that are contrary to the idea of irresistible grace, we see what Cain and Abel. Um, Abel's offering was accepted, it was a sacrifice that was morphed by faith, um, a sacrifice of an animal, um, a spotless lamb, Um, and and, you know the Bible says about the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, not that the animals say it all, but that it was a foreshadow of what Jesus would be, the pure lamb of God, who would shed his world for mankind. Well, we see that God addresses Cain who does something of his own works, um, of his own garden he grew and brings forth the fruit, the vegetables, and God was displeased because that's not the type of offering God expected. He didn't want something of their own works, but something that was a response in faith. But he didn't say, hey, Cain, sorry, buddy, you just aren't part of the elect, okay? But as he say, he says, and the Lord said unto king. Why art thou wrought? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, and if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. they you know, in his offering, he had a choice to make. It wasn't so like God was not allowing him to make the right choice. And so there's no hint that Cain was determined beforehand to be a reprobate and that Abel was irresistibly drawn to God. God told Cain, if he had met them right, that he would be accepted if it was the sacrifice of faith. You'll get the world before the flood in Genesis 6, 3. And the Lord said, "'My spirit shall not always strive with man, "'for that he also is flesh, "'yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years.'" So here we see the Spirit of God works on mankind, the Spirit of God does draw us, you know, Jesus is the one that said, if I be lifted up, it answers the question, who does the Father draw, he says, I will draw all men unto me, but of course all men do not end up coming to Christ, and even though they are called by the gospel, they do not all receive it. But we see it here in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God worked on man to bring conviction. But over time, God's like, hey, I'm done. And then he does send the global flood. But count that His Spirit stopped working um, to evict yourself after your continual wickedness. But we see the Spirit of God worked on man, but it was able to be rejected. Israel of old. The Bible says, Romans 10 21. But to Israel he said, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. That God in his love is mercy. He reached out to Israel. He wanted to save them. But they were disobedient to the gospel. It's um, the Apostles and Barnabas mentioned this, you count yourself unworthy of an everlasting life, so we move on to the Gentiles. But so this wasn't God didn't work on them, that God's Spirit didn't try and bring them to obedience. Yes, can God's grace force someone? If he wanted to, sure, God can do what he wants. But the question is, does God work that way? And we see that, you know what? God reached out to Israel, but He did not automatically save all of Israel. They had a choice to make. We see Israel in Christ It Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them, which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, would this a gather gathereth her chickens, under her wings, and he would not. So there's nothing irresistible about this grace. You know what? she says, but you know what? I would gather you. It's the hand gathers her chest. Tra- that I would save you. I'd, I'd be there for you. Which is, but he would not. They had a choice. Israel, the fathers had a choice. Israel's children. Had a choice. And it was able to be rejected. This is not showing God unconditionally elected some to salvation, predestinated them, and then did not predestinate any of the others to salvation. We see God reached out to them, but man had a choice to respond or not. And here's the big one right here. People to whom Stephen was preaching to. Um, um, he ends up saying, he stiff that and uncircumcised in heart and ears. he you always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. So Stephen says, hey, you know what, the Holy Ghost, your fathers resisted that. You know, what's the Bible talking about the Holy Spirit is for? It brings conviction, it reproves the world, um, and um, shows righteousness, it reproves of judgment. That the Spirit of God works on His creation. They resisted the Holy Ghost. And so this wasn't irresistible. This was God allowing in His sovereignty for His grace, for the working of His Spirit on the heart of man, to reject it. And then there does some a time as we see in the Old Testament, His Spirit won't always strive against me. That there will be a time where God says, okay, we're done. You know, in Thessalonians, it talks about how God will bring blindness. Why? Because they're not elected? No, but because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so there's a time where God might quit working on someone's heart, and they rejected it over and over and over. That's why just be a hold. Oh, today is the day of salvation, we don't know when God's going to quit working on the heart of an individual. But no doubt there's people praying for some people in Naperville, that they have family or friends here, and are praying for their salvation, and just maybe you are the one God would use to be a witness to them. His free will, biblical. Calvinists will say that God gets his will no matter what. What do they do with passages that say says that God wills, desires that all men would be saved? Uh, for example, this one right here, and this is what really springboarded into this series, is our series through 1 Timothy on order in the church. But uh, here Paul tells Timothy, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. How about how he wills, he desires for all men to be saved um, and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for the allotment. No, ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so what do Calvinists do with this kind of passage where it clearly talks about how God wills that all would be saved? Well, they invent this thing called the of will versus the deprederate the will. They say that God has two types of wills. The of will, or revealed will. That that's the will of God, that God reveals to us. That God reveals to us the gospel, um, that he says, um, repent, believe the gospel. That's what God reveals to mankind. But that his secret will, his decree of will, is what God, before the foundation of the world, has pre-chosen. That only some of those that hear the message of the gospel will be capable of believing And that's only because God's spirit irresistibly draws them. So that's how they get around it. They say there's two different wills of God. They say there's one that he says, and there's one that he really means. And so that God desires only to be able to get saved and that God invites all sinners to be saved, but that he has only decreed certain people to respond to the gospel um, to be saved. To me, I do about you, but well, that's the definition of deception, or a lie. To say something, but then they really they can't repent and believe the gospel if they weren't chosen. Now, Charles Spurgeon he was a Baptist preacher. He was a Reformed Baptist preacher, so he was a Calvinist himself, but I love his comments about the passage that we just read in 1 Timothy. He says, what then shall we try to put another meaning into the test than that which it fairly bears and true? not? He's like, I think not. You um, must, most of you, be acquainted with the general method and what our older Calvinistic friends deal with this test. All men say they, that means some men. As if, and he goes, as if the Holy Ghost could not have said some men, if he meant some men. Of oh, all men, and the they say that is some of all sorts of men, meaning like, YK, hey, of each tribe. There's going to be some of all tribes. As if the Lord could not have said all sorts of men if he had meant that. The Holy Ghost, by the Apostle, has written all men, and unquestionably, he means all men. I know how to get rid of the force of the alls according to the critical method, which some time ago was very current, but I do not see how it can be applied here with due regard to truth. Uh, and one example is, like I where the Bible talks about all men went after Christ. You know, and the Pharisees said all men went after and so they're like, well, does all really mean all? Did everyone in China, did everybody in Rome, did everybody, um, the natives in America, or wherever, if they're here by then, did they all come after them? And the answer is like, okay, obviously it wasn't all. It was more the Pharisees were using hyperbole to explain that by the droves. And so then you see all this not mean all in those passages. And so he says here, I don't see how that could be used in this context. That he wills that all would be saved, that he wills that all would come to repentance, that he died as a ransom for all. Because I don't see how we can take away all from meaning all here. Because I was reading just now the exposition of a very able doctor, um, well, his theological doctor, who explains the test so as to explain it in a way. He applies grammatical gunpowder to it and explodes it away by way of expounding it. I thought when I read his exposition that it would have been a very capital comment upon the text of a head read, who he will not have all men to be saved, nor come to the knowledge of the truth. Had such been the inspired language, every remark of the learned doctor would have been exactly in keeping. But as it happens to say who will have all men to be saved. His observations are more than a little out of place. My love for consistency with my own doctrinal views, as he was the Calvinist, um, is but not great enough to allow me knowingly to alter a single text of scripture. I have great respect for orthodoxy, but my reverence for inspiration is far greater. I would sooner a hundred times over appear to be inconsistent with myself than be inconsistent with the Word of God. I never thought it to be any very great crime to seem to be inconsistent with myself, for who am I that I should be everlastingly consistent? So I appreciate his honesty there, saying, hey, you know what? The Scripture here does not agree with Calvinism. He goes, now I'm a Calvinist, okay? But he believes it's scriptural, but he doesn't believe it's scriptural in this passage. And he's like, it may look like I'm very inconsistent, but you and am I, I'm am a man. I'd rather be inconsistent with my own theology than inconsistent with the Word of God itself. so, good for If Because I do think it is a great crime to be so inconsistent with the Word of God that I would want to walk away the bow or even a twig. From so much as a single tree of the forest of Scripture. God forbid that I should cut or shake, even in the least degree, any divine expression. So runs the text, and so we must read it. God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That word "will" there is more of the archaic word of it to me. His desire, his will uh, for it. And he says we're not to alter the Scripture. This is what it says. This is what we're going to preach. As it says, uh, free will. The Bible teaches there is a free will to respond to or to reject the gospel. Then it totally refutes total inability. That man can respond. Unconditional election. Limited atonement and irresistible grace.
0: You know, why would Christ tell
1: people to repent if there was no ability for them to do so? And so let's look at some scriptures. It talks about how in Acts 17 30, command of all men everywhere to repent. That's God's call to mankind, to all men everywhere. In the context of it, talks about all tribes and kingdoms. Luke 13, 3 and 5. says, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So he doesn't say you're going to perish because we didn't choose you, you're going to perish because we didn't draw you, but then yeah, you're going to perish if you don't repent. John 8.24 says, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. That's the basis of election. The Bible says we're elected according to his foreknowledge. Not his foreordination, not his foreign um, determination, not his predestination. Now those whom he foreknew, as Romans 8 talks about. Whom he, God foreknows, will be saved. He does predestinate us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That that is what we're predestined to. That because we come, we're believers, and God knows who's going to be believers. We see in Mark 10:21. 21, talk, um, will talk about there's common grace and then there's salvation grace. That God has the common grace, but doesn't want to save paul That Jacob have I love, but Esau have I hated. And so say, you know what? The unwanted God hates. But we see with the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 21, it says, that Jesus, beholding him, love him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. That he knew there was a sin in his life of greed. And he's wanted to point to him that he, he can't obey the law fully, but that he must come to Christ. And so we see, though, this wasn't Jesus hated him. Jesus loved him, but he still did not come to faith in Christ. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So over and over, we see different scriptures given this message. Uh, Ezekiel saying to them also, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Here, the Bible is very clear. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked to then be cast into the lake of fire. Calvinist perspective is that God gets pleasure in that because he gets glory in his justice. And now, is God God horrified in His justice. Sure, but he does not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires for them to repent, to turn to faith in him. Christ did provide himself with propitiation for the sins of the world. The Bible says that he is a propitiation for our sins, meaning he bore the wrath. It's a substitute on our behalf. We who are sinners, and he who is not a sinner, we get for his for righteousness, and he pays the price for our sin. But it's not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But he also gave man a choice. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, there's that word whosoever again, believe of in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So forty five, twenty two says, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And then in Romans 9, it is often brought up about Calvinists about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, what was the purpose? So all the ends of the earth would know who the Lord God was. That God's spirit had already quit striving with Pharaoh, so that God then hardened his heart. Um, Romans 10 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, in, in other words, in eternity past, a sovereign God, all powerful God, chose, elected to do the following. He elected to send his only begotten Son into the world to die for the sins of the world. then, Before the foundation of the world, the Bible talks about how Christ was predetermined. Or ordained to die on our behalf. That's what God the Father elected to do. He elected to save any and all who would put their faith and trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in God's omniscience, in being all-knowing, He foreknew man would willfully sin, and He determined before the foundation of the world to send His Son out of the appointed time to die for the end of god That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's not a sinner that Christ did not die for. In the infinite mind of God, before the world was created, Jesus Christ was already crucified in the mind of God. The plan of salvation was already in place. And if you would say, believers, we're all in Christ, like according to his foreknowledge. God foreknew. Nevertheless, the gospel is genuinely offered to all. Man will be without excuse, as Romans 1 teaches. Revelation 22 17, last book of the Bible, says, And the Spirit, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that would be the church, the church. Represents is the bride of Christ. The spirit and the bride say, Come! And let him that hear him say, Come! And let him that is to thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life fruit. The offer is to whosoever will. The gospel is not a closed gospel. It's an open gospel. If it was closed to a select few, there would be absolutely no need for the God of this world, Satan, not of God the Creator, but the God of this world in the minds of the people that Satan to be at work, there would be no need for him to try to blind the lost from the gospel. You know, and that's new, the Bible says blinds the lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Why would Satan be wasting his time to blind the lost if God has already blinded whom he wants blind and already opens the eyes of whom he wants to see the gospel? How would mean there would be no purpose. But that's who wants to keep people from the gospel. Yes, you know what? Does God blind people at times? Yes. But why does He blind Him? It's over time, they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They reject it, and reject it, and God's Spirit will not always strive with man. There's a time where God says, okay, enough is enough. But His Spirit is there to bring conviction upon the world. Let's go ahead and have a type of invitation this morning if we get some music playing. And I'm um, just, if today, you don't know that you're saved, Now I definitely believe that it's the Spirit of God that draws people. It's the Spirit of God that works on the looking hand heart. That, that we, in our own sinful nature, don't just say, hey, today I'm going to seek after God. The Bible says there is none that seek to after Him. No, not one. That's the biblical truth. But it's Jesus who came to be the life of the world to everyone that enters. And the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That he is the one that chose to redeem us, to offer the gift of salvation, but we must respond. If His Spirit works on us, we must respond. Today, if you haven't made that choice, I pray that you make that decision. Come to the altar, you can let me know after church. Hey, Pastor, I want to know for sure I'm on my way to heaven. show you from the Word of God how you can do that. It's Val. just go ahead and have a time of prayer. let time with the Lord. Maybe pray for those who don't.